You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. So thanks so much for that intro, oh, Tim. You know, oh, as he mentioned, we're here to talk about digital currencies and how the Internet and other technology is changing sort of what the future of money may or may not end up looking like. And we have a great expert panel here today. I'm really excited to sit down and chat with. Uh, right next to me, we have Virginia in England from um, the uh, uh, Digital Currency Council. All in next to her, we have Joseph uh, Colangelo. I really hope I pronounced that right. I'm sorry if I, I did it wrong. <laughs> uh, the Executive Director of Consumers Research and Parian Bohr in there at the end for um, the Chamber of Digital Commerce. You know, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time introing things because I know that we have a panel that is able to do that quite well. I'm actually going to shoot it over to Parian here to get started with to talk a little, little bit about what Bitcoin and the blockchain and other digital currencies are looking like in a sort of historical context and how we got to where we are today. Great. Thank you so much for that. And also thank you, Tim, uh, for putting this event together. And thank you all for being here and taking an interest in this, um, what we sometimes like to refer to as magical Internet money. <laughs> um, so my name is Perry Boring. I'm the founder and president of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, and we are a trade association that exclusively represents these types of technologies. Uh, from a, Well, let me first ask a couple of basic questions so I can kind of get a feel for where the room is. Who here... Um, it feels like they have an understanding of Bitcoin. Okay. Who here owns any Bitcoin or any altcoins or digital currencies? All right. And who is a complete uh, a skeptic? And it's okay if you are. There's, there's, <laughs> I'm noting you, Kyle. All right. So um, from a very high level, I'll just kind of give you our, our thoughts on, on a great way to look at this technology from a policy perspective. Uh, so we're in very early days of, of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin was first released uh, around 2008. So we're about six years into this grand experiment. And to give you uh, a way to kind of weigh that timeline, TCPIP, which was another uh, internet layer, that took about 10 years to build. So from, um, from that perspective, we're in still very, very early days of building out this technology. Uh, and a lot of times we like to build uh, similar parallels to the Internet with Bitcoin and blockchain technology. Um, in the early days of the Internet, some of the first consumer uses were for email. Uh, sending a message online instantly for free pretty much anywhere in the world was one of the first uses that we saw consumers using the Internet. Uh, and there was also all sorts of concerns with the Internet in early days. Um, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with them. Tim went over those uh, just a moment ago. Um, but if we would have regulated the Internet as its use as email only, we could have stifled its potential to grow into all sorts of other types of technologies. So in the early 90s, we could have never foreseen how many use cases have been built out on the Internet. Uh, government functions have gone online, shopping, e-commerce, uh, the entire music industry, the broadcast industry. So email was one of the first simple use cases because it was an easier application to build. And over time, we use the Internet for so many other things. So now we're in the days of Bitcoin and the blockchain. Uh, the first consumer application and use case has very much been its use as a currency. It's really the first uh, and easiest thing to throw over the, the, the blockchain, the rails, the payment rails, it is a currency. However, again, like I stated, we're in very early days, and there are many companies, uh, many of whom that we are working with, are building all sorts of types of technologies that implement the, the blockchain to use it for other types of resources. Uh, I'll give you an example. There is a project um, where, um, I don't know if I can disclose the name of the organizations, but there is an organization that's looking to fight human trafficking in Bangladesh. So one of the biggest issues there are that birth certificates are, um, the country has really been incapable of producing birth certificates for many of the citizens, and it's a huge contributor to human trafficking. So they're looking at issuing 
a birth certificate over the blockchain because it's a public ledger and to fight human trafficking in Bangladesh and other areas like that. So at a very high level, that's an example of non-currency applications for the blockchain. Uh, how it works in specific, it could take months to really truly comprehend and without a deep understanding and, and, and software development or cryptography, I don't know if it would be easy to really see how it works. Um, but I would just say that this is a very powerful technology. All of the, the biggest banks from, from UBS, uh, Citibank, uh, USAA, uh, even the New York Stock Exchange, uh, pretty much every institution on Wall Street has taken a huge interest in this technology, along with many of the largest tech companies as well. Uh, this is also one of the greatest white spaces in technology, and investors, entrepreneurs, the banks are devoting tremendous amount of resources into this technology. So again, it's very early days, uh, but its potential are um, potentially limitless. So one of the points you made there is that it's complicated to understand technically. Is there anyone on the panel who might be able to give us sort of a very simplified version of how the tech actually works that we can sort of build upon throughout the rest of the panel as we talk about use cases? I'd like Jin Young to do it. <laughs> <laughs> given the, best, uh, the best explanation that I've ever heard before. So Perfect. Well... So I like to think of um, Bitcoin and the blockchain kind of like baking cookies. Now, everyone <laughs> at some point have attempted to bake a cookie from scratch, right? I actually don't bake, so I may be just pulling this out of my butt, but just letting you know, when you're baking a cookie, you have your basic ingredients. You have flour, butter, oil, eggs, sugar, maybe. Um, but then if you want to make a chocolate chip cookie, you add chocolate chips, right? If you want to make an M&M cookie, you add M&Ms. You want to make a peanut butter cookie, you add peanut butter. Um, so that's one way to think of Bitcoin and the blockchain, because what basically Satoshi Nakamoto did was present the basic formula, the basic ingredients for transferring value over the Internet. And that value could be money. It could be a, a, a real property digitalized as a digital asset. And so he's provided that basic formula, and if you as a technologist or you as an entrepreneur know, understand that basic formula, you can then add whatever else to that formula to create separate applications. So, for example, what Perianne was talking about, digital identities or smart contracts or um, using it as a currency. In the U.S., we don't really think that's very important, but in countries like Argentina or North Korea, where they have high inflation or capital controls or very strict government um, control, then it, then it becomes important to have a, f a means of transaction that is free. Great. That, that was a terrific overview. I just a little, little bit more technically, if you're, <laughs> you're hearing, you probably heard some of the words around this industry, like miners. Um, the, way, the thing that makes Bitcoin and blockchain really unique is that instead of uh, one centralized organization running a computer and keeping track of a bunch of information, like PayPal or Visa or Bank of America does, uh, a number of different uh, computers, some personal computers, some um, you know, large rows of mainframes, are running the same exact database. So with everybody having equal opportunity to update that database and everybody having equal uh, ability to access the information within it, it creates the... Um, this really a very democratized database. And the, the problem in the past was that you always needed somebody to pay for a database, right? If the DMV wanted to do something, they needed either government money or a company needed to come to them and say, we're going to run this database, integrate with you, and you're going to pay us. Um, the way that this is a free database to access is that every few minutes, new Bitcoins are created and Bitcoins are given to the people who update this database. So the more you update the database, the more Bitcoins you get. And the more Bitcoins are worth, then the more computing power you devote to updating this database. So it creates this snowball effect, this virtuous circle, where uh, if it continues, it's going to be the strongest, uh, most kind of like a robust database in the world. And anybody can use it from the... You know, the villager with a smartphone has the same access to it as a bank on Wall Street. And that's really the incredible part about this technological innovation. It's what makes this more than just a, a cultural innovation. It is, it is a technological achievement in its own.
you know, as a sort of technological achievement, who are the people that are actually using this right now? What's the market like? I gave a general overview a moment ago uh, from the current state of Bitcoin. Uh, one, you have the financial institutions who all of them are looking at it. Um, not all of them have publicly admitted that, but they're all looking at it. Uh, and they're using it for uh, many different types of purposes. The Bank of Santander put out uh, a white paper saying they found 25 different uses for the blockchain within just that one institution. So from settlement, clearing, foreign exchange, there's a million different ways that you can make the, the pipes within the financial institutions more efficient. On the technology side, we just saw IBM yesterday uh, announce a smart contracts platform um, and then also w uh, using the blockchain. Uh, and then you also have the Internet of Things. I would say just today uh, how many of you probably would say, I don't know how I'd live my life without the Internet. Uh, another 10 years from now, many of us will say, I don't know how I would function without blockchain because it has so many different types of uses. But again, it's very early days. So you have the financial institutions big tech, and then you also have this huge industry of startups. So there's all these Bitcoin, blockchain, digital currency startups, and they're creating their own innovative types of, uh, of companies and use cases and applications for the blockchain. And a lot of these startups are going to end up being acquired by the big tech companies and by the big banks. Um, but this is where really the hub of innovation is truly coming from. Should we be concerned that the primary use case at this point has been financial and what the regulatory landscape looks like there? What do you guys see as the regulatory landscape right now? And it's very interesting from, uh, from the financial perspective. Bitcoin uh, offers a lot of things. It, it offers the opportunity to transfer money very quickly. It offers uh, access to those who don't have access to a bank or modern financial institutions. But uh, all, all the things that it really brings to bear didn't don't necessarily affect U.S. consumers. The United States consumers are already the luckiest in the world. They know that if they write their PIN number on their credit card or on their debit card and it gets stolen, they're not going to be at fault for their money. There's this huge apparatus that's been built in America to protect consumers, and it does it pretty well for the most part. Uh, so Americans right now are using this. I mean, they're speculating on it. They're investing in it and building companies around it, um, really with the hopes of either making you know, probably making money or making the world a better place. Uh, the people who are going to be most impacted by this are the ones who do not have access to a financial institution at all. So in, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa where it's, there are no bank, local ba bank branches, um, Bitcoin has the opportunity to, to skip uh, these uh, brick-and-mortar businesses in the same way that they kind of they skip landlines and they went straight to cell phones. So this, this digital money has uh, a lot of promise for them. But right now in America, uh, people are making money off of it. So there's uh, at least eight agencies that are interested in regulating that. And that's, I, think, I think that's where your question is leading, is that w what is going on with the CFTC, the SEC, the IRS, and are these things going to stifle Bitcoin? And, and I'll let Jin Young weigh on, weigh on that question. Well, and just to, to add to what Joe said, um, you know, it was important that the financial um, industry noticed Bitcoin, right? Because Bitcoin in and of itself when it was first invented, it didn't have any value. You know, there was a time when Bitcoin was worth maybe 10 cents and the whole community, which was this small at the time, celebrated. Because they're like, oh, it's worth 10 cents. Then it went to a dollar and then it went to 10. And then, you know, in the spring of 2013, when Cyprus went down and people started realizing, wow, the government, they have control over my bank account. And people started realizing, okay, if I don't really have control of my money, my own hard earnings, then, then what does this mean for me personally? So Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin went up over 400. And because the value of Bitcoin as a currency is market-based, right, it was necessary for um, the financial institutions to recognize it and for the market to see it as um, a valuable unit of exchange because that's what got it on the map. And that's what brought all the um, venture capitalists and investors to the table to take a look at it seriously. Um, moving on to the regulatory uh, consequences, right? CFTC, they just announced that they want to regulate this as a commodity. Um, and there is an organization here called Coin Center as well. Um, they, al they also provide um, regulatory and policy briefings and, and white papers. So another great organization to look into. And 
they are, along with the Chamber of Digital Com of Commerce, able to um, provide that perspective of, you know, how is the CFTC treating this? How is the IRS treating this? How is um, the FBI wanting to treat this when they're seizing bitcoins, right, and then needing to, to sell them? And in a way, um, what we're seeing is we're, we're we continue to see some agencies want to put Bitcoin in the box that already exists. Say, okay, well, we regulate commodities, so we're going to call Bitcoin a commodity and put it in our box. But what if government agencies looked at Bitcoin and the technology for what it is and say, okay, this doesn't fit in my box. How can we create a new box for this technology that doesn't just neatly fit into my one box? And, that, you know, it's actually... Um, I think that's a challenge for government agencies to think outside of, you know, what they know and to accept and create space for something very different. You know, we've been talking about this as a place where there's a lot of investing going on, a lot of money going into it, and, and you mentioned uh, that back in like 2015 there was this significant spike, but there was also after that spike a significant fall. Uh, Bitcoin has been very volatile. It's been bouncing around, you know. Which... It's actually been very stable for over a year now, right? It's, it's leveled out a lot. In fact, we did a, um, there was uh, an article that was published recently where a guy had done a study and they found that it was less volatile than over 20 countries around the world. So in the United mm -hmm. States, yes, this, the, the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency, so we have the most stable currency from a price perspective in the world. Um, however, uh, there's many countries where they do not have volatile currencies, and, and Bitcoin actually could potentially be a better option than, not necessarily a better option, but a good alternative to uh, government fiat-based currencies. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, as Americans, we have a tendency to, we're part of this fishbowl, right? But, um, you know, your, your government-issued currency is only as strong as your government. And, you know, we here in America, we've been privileged to live in America, but imagine if you're someone in Argentina or North Korea or now in Europe, in Greece, in Cyprus. Um, it, it changes your perspective on, on money, changes your perspective on the role of financial institutions, and um, it changes your perspective on whether or not we need a disruptor to the financial space. Yeah, we like to say that if you're in... If you're in Venezuela, you have a choice between a currency that can go up or down or a currency that's just going to go down. You already know that your local <laughs> currency is only going down. Bitcoin might go up, it might go down, but it's, it's a better alternative than one that you know is already get, just going to decrease. And there's nothing inherent about Bitcoin that makes it volatile. Uh, it's only volatile because it's so thinly traded. And like I've, I've said over and over again, we're in very early days. So there's not a ton of people using it today because we're still building out the technology. We're still building out the infrastructure. But as more and more users start jumping into this ecosystem, it is leveling out. And we are seeing that. We've seen that a lot over the past year, like Jen Young just mentioned. Uh, and I also wanted to touch on, on the policy perspective because you're probably wondering, well, how do you regulate this thing? Um, well, every hearing, debate, all the discussions, all the legislation, all the regulation to date have all addressed Bitcoin's use as a currency. But like I've been stating that you can use this for other types of applications. So one thing that we're pushing in a lot of our educational efforts that we do at the Chamber is helping people better understand that, yes, Bitcoin is and has and will be used as a currency and is being regulated like that today. But from a policy perspective, it's very important to understand what the blockchain is. And that's that distributed public ledger. And that is not not a currency. That's an open source uh, piece of infrastructure. It's a protocol that you can use for all, all, all types of purposes. And so when we're looking at regulating Bitcoin's use as a currency, we have to be very careful that we're not applying that to the blockchain. So our motto when we approach regulation at the chamber is regulate by function. Uh, so it's very much a risk-based approach. This is very similar with the FATF guidelines that came out earlier this year on virtual currency, is you have to look at how Bitcoin is being used in order to regulate it. So if people are using Bitcoin as a currency, then it's fair to regulate that like a currency. If it's being used as a commodity, so for example, one of our members, Ledger X, just was granted temporary approval by the CFTC to offer some derivative 
derivative products on the market, and they're being regulated and they're using Bitcoin as a commodity, and it's regulated by the CFTC as a commodity. But again, it's applying that risk-based approach to its use, its function of using Bitcoin in a, in a derivative-type uh, application. Um, from the SEC's perspective, this is its use as a security. We have another member, Overstock.com, one of the largest online retailers. This was the first uh, public company to um, accept Bitcoin, and now they're also... Um, using overstock, overstock as a bed to uh, create all sorts of other products using Bitcoin. And uh, what they released earlier uh, this year is a crypto-based securities exchange. So what is that? This is something extremely innovative. It's, it's really, truly a first of its kind, but it's where Overstock has built this platform where they can potentially issue their own shares over their own crypto-based exchange. And there's all sorts of other companies that are now approaching Overstock and saying, hey, we want to use your platform too because uh, they pay extremely high fees to use other types of, of exchanges. So from a securities perspective, if you're using Bitcoin as a security, then that's free game to regulate it as a security. And then there's another, you know, there's a whole other type, uh, other types of use, uses and, and ways you can regulate it. So at the chamber, we've identified. You mentioned eight. We've identified ten agencies that are looking at regulating this. But again, it's by the function. So from a law enforcement perspective, if people are using Bitcoin to do anything illegal, whatever that may be, I'm sure you guys have seen some of the headlines in, in the media. Um, that you know, absolutely fair to regulate and prosecute people who want to abuse this for criminal purposes. Um, but there also are are, are a lot better uses uh, for, for legal commerce as well. You know, I'd like to sort of take part of what you brought up and go back to an aspect that Joe brought up about the idea of these being used sort of internationally by a everyday a consumers who live in a more volatile old part of uh, our global economy. Should they be concerned about other or signs of maturity in the market or the security issues that we've seen with some exchanges throughout the year, uh, not, not the year, but throughout the <laughs> years uh, that Bitcoin has been around. I mean, there have been some pretty high-profile security flaws, bugs, hacks, where money that was in the system just disappeared. Absolutely. This uh, presents the greatest threat to consumers that want to get involved with Bitcoin right now. Bitcoin has, uh, you know, there's kinetic and potential, right? Uh, very little security built into the market right now with Bitcoin, but uh, the, the underlying protocol has the potential to, to make a world that is so vastly more secure and safe for consumers. Uh, it's, it's a revolution, not an evolution. Right? All of consumer protection is based on the premise that consumers have to trust third parties with their money, with their information, with their decision-making to some extent. Um, and then we say, okay, well, now the consumers have to trust third parties. We can't make sure, you know, consumers aren't experts. You know, they don't know how, if a bank's solvent or a company is profitable. We can't expect them to read 10Ks. So we're going to create a lot of rules for these third parties so the consumers don't have to even think about trusting this bank. Um, and, but again, it's based on that assumption that they have to trust this third party. Bitcoin and, and blockchain technologies, they have uh, the capacity to, to shatter that assumption. It's a, as a consumer, you don't have to trust third parties. You can be in charge of your money. You can selectively, momentarily share your information with a service and be, have it be cryptologically secure such that you can bring it back and know that they don't have access to it anymore. Uh, and you can, you, know, you can share, you can have it, uh, a financial advisor help you with your money, but they could never walk away with it. You could have a bank uh, you know, protect your money with escrow, but they could never walk away with it. And so... That's the real revolution here, um, and we're going we're gonna to see whether the, the tail wags the dog, and we say, okay, we, we, need, uh, we need all these regulations to make sure these, sure these third parties are secure, or we're going to see whether, uh, I, don't, I have no idea what's going to happen, right? So I don't know whether the first thing that's going to happen is people lose a billion dollars and uh, the government, governments, state governments or, or some other entity says, that's it, we're done with this, uh, we're, not, we're not having Bitcoin anymore, or whether somebody implements something that's so secure and so easy to use for consumers that uh, it draws people away from the existing financial structure. From the security perspective, 
the blockchain and Bitcoin itself is extremely secure. Uh, where we're seeing security issues are in different companies that are using Bitcoin. So one of the most high profile uh, examples of this was Mt. Gox. I'm sure many of you have heard of this. This was an exchange that was based in Japan. It's named Mt. Gox, stand for Magic the Gathering Online Exchange. Does anyone know what magic cards are? My brother, my older brother is a pretty big nerd when it comes to magic. He has literally an entire closet of magic cards, so I actually knew what it was. But this was an exchange where people were buying and selling. It's like Pokemon cards. And because this was early days, there was really nowhere to go to buy and sell Bitcoin. And someone at this Magic the Gathering online exchange said, sure, you can buy and sell Bitcoin here too. Well, it turned out to be a huge exchange um, and it ended up being a very terrible company. It was never meant to be a financial services institution. It was, it, they did trading cards. Uh, <laughs> let's put this in perspective. And they were in Japan, so they were not regulated by the United States. Ended up being a pretty much um, a, a disaster. The people running the company have now um, been, been arrested for embezzlement and, and other, other crimes. They were stealing the Bitcoin. Well, allegedly, that's what they're being charged for. The company was just not run by financial services professionals. Many consumers lost their money. Over $500 million dollars worth of Bitcoin was, was lost, potentially stolen through Mt. Gox. That's less than the types of fines that some of the major banks have been given for worse or crimes. And as consumers, I mean, it is up to the consumer to do their due diligence on a company. You know, before you give a company your money, you should probably research who founded the company, who are on the board of directors, are they solvent? And in this case that Perian points out with Mt. Gox, I mean, she's absolutely right. This was very, very early days, even before the media started writing about Bitcoin. And the man who ran Mt. Gox had no business skills, did not know how to scale or run a multi-million dollar company, and it failed. And it should have. And it should have, absolutely. Um, and so from a consumer point of view, um, and as Perry had mentioned, you know, Bitcoin, the technology, um, the code has never been hacked. So that, if the media is writing that, that's just misinformation. But companies run by people who maybe don't have the skills to write the code to secure your Bitcoin or the business skills to know how to scale their business, you know, those companies have been hacked, but, you know, so has Target, which is a multi-billion dollar company. Um, and so as a consumer, the, the due diligence is on us to do the research and use companies and put our money where, you know, we have a reasonable um, reasonable amount of knowledge to decide, okay, this is a, a really legit company. And before the, the Mt. Gox went under, there were, um, the company itself had put out notices uh, even a, a year before the, the, the total fallout at the very end saying we've lost Bitcoin. If you put your money in a bank and the bank gave you a notice saying we just lost all this money, would you keep your money there? Especially if they didn't have insurance, right? So, I mean, this was an example of a failure. The media blew it really out of proportion, and it really sped up the regulatory process here in the United States because it concerned a lot of regulators. But by no means was that you know, an indicator that Bitcoin is not safe. Mt. Gox was not safe, not Bitcoin. I would say that we, we have probably the best educated consumer that America has ever seen, but we also uh, we have a culture that has been built since uh, 1933, on not having to question whether banks are solvent. So uh, even even some smart people were kind of surprised that there was no insurance for Mt. Gox. They were like, well, you know, there were, there were honest discussions online about whether the FDIC would insure these losses. Uh, and that, that's absolutely ridiculous and silly to think about. But at, at the same time, it, it is to be kind of expected when, when every single institution that we've ever dealt with has had that little FDIC insurance logo on it. So we don't think about it anymore. It's become the normal. But, exactly. but, and but the it's the early location, days, you know, we're yeah. getting there. Right now, consumers, if they want to try, trade Bitcoin or use Bitcoin uh, for things, they have a lot of options internationally. And it's uh, just as, so if, if you want to sign up for an American Bitcoin exchange, you need to provide your driver's license, your uh, proof of ID, or you know, a, a lot of things. Uh, and then go, you know, jump through some hoops. And if you're in certain states and you can't do it at all, or you can go to a, a, an exchange based in the cloud, which has some, some Ukrainian ties, some Bulgarian ties, and, and they don't ask any questions, and you can trade like that. So uh, the real challenge in the United States, in the past, we could regulate, and we could create a uh, regulatory regime and not have to worry about people going internationally to skirt that regulatory regime because the transaction cost was so high. 
They would have to physically go internationally. They would have to wire money and then fill out AML and KYC forms. Um, but now they don't have to. They just, okay, that's fine. You know what? The regulatory burden is too tough in the United States. I'll just go to this other one that's approved in you know, India or has no, no home country. So that's, that is the unique challenge facing Bitcoin right now, is the United States could come out tomorrow and say, Bitcoin is illegal, can't mention it, can't write about it, you know, uh, constitutionality of that aside. But like, you know, they could come out and, and with the most draconian anti-Bitcoin measures in the world, but for the first time there is this really large escape valve, this blow-off valve, where people would be able to skirt those. Uh, so it's definitely one of the most important things about getting this uh, legislation and, and regulation right. Absolutely. Yeah, because if America were to ban it, which, you know, doesn't seem very likely, but there's a huge competitive advantage for the U.S. to be first. And for the U.S., I mean, the majority of the investments are here in the U.S. Um, some of the biggest players in this space are from the U.S. And from a, a U.S. perspective, it is a major competitive advantage to stay in the lead, um, to have an um, open mind about the technology, um, and in the first Senate hearings that we had in 2014, uh, we had the result was this kind of wait-and-see approach. Um, and since then, some people, individuals, and some groups have taken a more aggressive approach, but really the right approach is wait-and-see. Wait and because even great companies like Apple, it was 20 years before they made it big. So some things just take time. So, but in the meantime, it sounds as though the general consensus of the table is that the underlying technology, the blockchain, and Bitcoin itself is secure, but the layers that consumers need to go through to access it might not be in this current economy. Not all of them, certainly. They've that, had that's no different than in any other industry. There's how many startups fail every year? How many small businesses fail every year? The majority of them fail than that are successful. Uh, one thing that would be extremely helpful and that we are working on is having industry guidelines and best practices. And like I, we've said over and over again, we're in really early days and the industry is working to put together best practices, guidelines, having a better business bureau, all those types of things are helpful. Have that seal of approval. Yes, we meet the industry's best practices. Uh, and, and that can provide you know, some, some better ways for consumers to be educated and to know what types of companies are, are good to, to use, which companies are. In the U.S., there are uh, you know, a couple of exchanges, consumer-based exchanges. They are regulated, and, and they're, they're fine to use, like, like Coinbase and Circle. Both of those are, are companies who have some of the most prominent venture capitalists backing them. Uh, including Goldman Sachs and Mark Andreessen, uh, and those are those are safe companies to use, uh, absolutely. Uh, but when you're storing your money overseas, how, you know we, you don't get the same types of of regulations or the same types of standards that we expect as Americans. Uh, but you know, Coinbase and Circle, you know, didn't necessarily have the same jump. Uh, you know, first started ex first mover advantage as Mount Gox did, but that was really more of a fluke. So, as a consumer, it's important to understand if you're putting your money with with anybody, whether it's your bank or whether it's a Bitcoin company or whether under your mattress, you want to make sure that's a safe place to put it, and you need to do a little bit of research to figure that out. So, I don't think that's really any different than any other industry. And how would you compare er, the use of Bitcoin in an international sort of uh, monetary use to the current and status quo of money processors available? Well, across the, you know, according to the World Bank, 74% of the world's population does not have access to basic financial services. And we've touched on this a little bit today, that in the U.S., we have a financial financial services system. It's not perfect, um, even as much as half of the American population does not have, is on or underbanked. But we still have a financial system that, that, that works, and it's really the, the best and the most efficient in the world. Um, but there are other places around the world where there really is – you know, essentially zero access to financial services or, or very little. Uh, so we have a, you know, a more advanced system. Uh, around the world, uh, there are hubs of uh, Bitcoin companies setting up. So we are seeing jurisdictional arbitrage. Uh, there is a little bit of fight between the regulators. I think it's more a healthy competition with, with the U.K. The U.K. has done some initiatives um, inviting companies to come and start Bitcoin companies in the U.K. We've also seen this in the Isle of Man. 
Man. Uh, if you haven't heard of the Isle of Man, it's a, it's, um, a Scottish rite, but it's, it's right outside the European Union. Uh, and they're the, actually the very first regulated uh, Bitcoin investment vehicle uh, came from the Isle of Man. Uh, and then there's also uh, quite a bit of activity happening in Australia, um, but it is very much a global industry. However, 90% of investment dollars are coming out of the U.S. So really, the majority of it comes out of the United States. We have the largest economy. We have the most advanced financial system, so that's not surprising. But it truly is global, uh, and, and we're seeing all, all, you know, all sorts of new, you know, new, new companies, new startups coming up every day. So what we're talking about here is remittance, right? Somebody needs money in Ghana or Mexico, and their relative in the United States wants to send it back to them. Um, it's one of the kind of like the worst systems for the most disadvantaged people right now. If you want to send someone a dollar, that's impossible. If you want to send them a hundred dollars, you're probably going to, depending on the country, pay twenty-five to fifty dollars to send it to them. There are stories where somebody sends fifty dollars, and the person receiving it shows up, and they owe money. Uh, you know, the fees outstrip the uh, the amount of money being sent. So this is going to be Bitcoin's first kind of international killer app, and it can happen very quickly. But uh, instead of so there are a lot of companies out there right now. Instead of trying to boil an ocean and get the whole world to accept Bitcoin all at once, they're saying this is this little area of Tanzania and like this little area of Michigan with a lot of Tanzanians uh, sending money back. Like we're going to focus on setting up a direct link here between these two people because it is just as easy for me to buy Bitcoin, just as inexpensive and fast for me to buy Bitcoin. Um, or to, to send Bitcoin to somebody sitting across the table from me as it is for me to send Bitcoin to an address whose owner is located halfway around the world. Um, so it's not there yet. You know, it, it is not yet a credible alternative for people who do remittances, but it's going to happen pretty quickly when it happens. And it's going to be such, a, like, such an improvement. It's going to be a 10x improvement over what exists right now that it is going to completely disrupt uh, very quickly. And from a law enforcement perspective, you know, Coinsetter has a great white paper on this, but there's an opportunity for law enforcement as well. Because when you talk about terrorist financing, money laundering, human trafficking, you know, at the Senate hearing, the um, FinCEN director admitted that cash is still the best way to launder money, and it's because it's virtually untraceable, right? There are ways to trace it. It takes a lot of effort. Um, but if, if we were to move into a digital cashless economy, right? And let's say criminals who are dumb enough to use Bitcoin or any other digital currency to commit crimes end up using them, the opportunity for law enforcement is massive because now you are working with a borderless currency. And previously, you know, if someone from the UK purchased um, you know, internet crimes against children in the Philippines, you would have to go to the countries and you would have to get um, jurisdictional permission to enter, you know, the country or to access certain financial records. But if they were to use Bitcoin, right, the blockchain is an open ledger. It's an open database of information and transactions. And so you as law enforcement, and this is um, primarily a group that we work with at the Digital Currency Council, is training law enforcement and providing them with the tools in order to geolocate criminals who are using, or abuse, in our case, abusing digital currencies for their criminal purposes. And now they can take this open ledger and this open database of transactions and more quickly connect criminals to the crime without having to go through all these existing legal loopholes. And so therein also lies an opportunity for a borderless currency. You know, how does that square with Bitcoin's sort of reputation for association with online black markets? I mean, when the Silk Road bust happened in, in recent years, uh, what, part of the headline was just how much money he, uh, that managed to accumulate primarily through Bitcoin. As it's that's, that's a very good point. Um, criminals will use anything to do or, you know, and in this case, Anyone will, if they want something bad enough, right, they'll use anything to pay for it. I mean, there are cases in Africa where Tide, like your, your laundry detergent, is valuable and it's used as a currency to trade because it's valuable, right? Money really is whatever you or your community or society of people deem as valuable and as a means of an exchange, right? And so 
Yes, the Silk Road case. Um, one of the, the first use cases was, you know, to buy drugs. Um, but we also found from a law enforcement perspective, it was actually very easy to take the case down because every time you use a digital currency, you do, you leave a digital footprint. Or if you use the internet, everyone knows now, hopefully, if it's on the internet, it's forever on the internet. So you want to be very, you know, you want to be wise. Yeah, from an illegal, you know, a narcotics perspective, the issue here is narcotics. It's not Bitcoin. And criminals, yeah. like Jin Young just said, you can use any type of medium. Uh, but really, it's a lot better for from a law enforcement perspective if they do use the if a Bitcoin or a type of digital currency because then they have a digital footprint. As opposed to if they were using cash, there's no way to track it at all whatsoever. So, you know, from a law enforcement perspective, you know, narcotics is the issue, not Bitcoin. Bitcoin was just one of the many tools you know, in the case, but also is the U.S. Postal Service. A lot of people go online, they, they you know, buy this stuff on Silk Road or Agora, and then they use the U.S. Postal Service to ship it. So why are we talking, you know, we could have the same conversation about the U.S. Postal Service. Yeah, Andrea, it's a good point. I think that a few years from now we're going to look back and we'll say, from 2000 to 10, 2016, uh, Bitcoin was the killer app for criminals. It was so great. It made their lives so much better, and then they all figured out that they shouldn't use it or they were going to get caught. Uh, and all the wise ones, you know, stopped using it, and it, it became law enforcement's best friend. But I don't know. Maybe something will happen. Uh, there, there will, because it is this ledger that anybody can access. So as smart as you are, uh, the government, you don't know if the government's running these mixers that help you hide Bitcoin or, you know, who, who can access this information. So it's, uh, it's not, a, if I were a criminal, I would not be using Bitcoin. Well, I'm sure... Uh, actually, that's perfect because I'm about to open it up for questions. So you're first on the list, I promise. <laughs> so we could spend a lot of time uh, continuing this conversation, I'm sure, but we do have a hard stop of 1 p.m. here. we got to get out of the room then. So I am going to open it up to questions, and I know we have one right over here. <laughs> So if I want to send money to anybody, they or if I need to open up an account at a bank, I need to fill out the, the there's know your customer and anti-money laundering laws. Um, so I cannot anonymously open up an account. Sure, you can open with a fake ID, but you know there's security footage, and you know they will be able to trace you to this account. Then if you ever want to send a high amount of money to somebody, you need to fill out, uh, you know, the, the bank will send in a suspicious activity report. Uh, and so the, the legacy banking system has a really, like, has worked with law enforcement a great deal. So law enforcement has figured out how to kind of, uh, stamp out a lot of the illicit activity there. Bitcoin, they haven't figured, they didn't figure that, that out yet. They're figuring it out now. But if I wanted to purchase Bitcoin and then send it to somebody, I have to go through no checks, whether it's a dollar or $100,000. Um, and especially if I'm, I'm purchasing digital content, um, it's an instant transaction, it's irreversible, and uh, it's really much preferred by the merchants. And on the other thing, too, is a lot of reporters, you know, they misreport that Bitcoin is anonymous. Not you, Andrea. Not you. No, she's actually very intelligent on the issue. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Bitcoin is only as anonymous as you can make it. So if you have the technical skills or the knowledge to make it anonymous, you can you can get pretty close, right? But as Joe mentioned, um, and as Perry Ann has brought up several times, you know, there are companies where if you want to, you know, operate in the light, you know, then you do have to provide KYC, AML information. You have to be compliant because the company wishes to be a compliant company. There are also ways, you know, you can set up a Bitcoin wallet on your own, not connected to any company, not connected to any financial institution, but you're going to have to have some technical skills, and the majority of the people around the world don't have those skills. Um, and if you don't have the skills and you kind of clumsily put it together, then those on the law enforcement side who are being trained by expert, experts in the field and provided tools, it's going to be fairly easy to connect your identity to your transaction because you don't have the technical know-how to, to mask yourself online. All right, do we have anyone else who has, there we go. So I feel like I have a pretty good grasp of the 
So something, um, the other half of that knowledge gap, right, is that there is infinite divisibility. So, yeah. Uh, and I would say that the, the last one won't be mined until t the year 2140. Um, so next year, the amount of Bitcoins that are given out per hour goes, gets cut in half. And then a few years later, it gets cut in half and, and so on and so on. So that in the year 2139, uh, you know, it's just a sliver of Bitcoin being released every single day. Uh, the theory goes that by then that will be worth a, a trillion dollars, right? So uh, the, it will not hurt the economic output. But I think Bitcoin's more like gold than anything else. I don't think that – I think that the U.S. Uh, Treasury will come out with uh, AmeriCoin or something like that, and you know, consumers will use the uh, some other method that the Federal Reserve has power over to, to transact in coffee. I'm guessing, but and that Bitcoin will be the equivalent of gold. It'll have its price published in the Wall Street Journal, but it won't be used for commerce, uh, you know, 50 years from now. Right. So there is an infinite um, amount, uh, and like Joe mentioned, a lot of people are comparing that to gold. A lot of people have compared Bitcoin to a, a, a gold 2.0, uh, and this is a very similar argument that we hear amongst the gold standard: is that there's not enough gold to go around for us to use gold as a currency. Um, that makes as much sense as saying that there's not enough rulers to measure all the inches in the world. It's just a measurement. So the more people that are using it, it just becomes more valuable. Each Bitcoin will go up in price. Um, and then the other side of this is because it's digital and because you can divide it, it also now opens up the possibility for what's called microtransactions. You can send a tenth of a penny now for free. It actually makes economic sense to do that. So this opens up a whole other area of commerce of microtransactions. So that's a whole other discussion of why you would use microtransactions, but it's a whole other uh, industry in itself. All right. Anybody else have questions for our panelists here? No need to be shy. Right over there. Well, one one of that one of those barriers um, is being worked on by some people in the space, right? Because um, so I lived in India and in Mozambique, and you know the widows that we worked with, they may be living in a, a dirt and stone hut with no electricity except for maybe one communal point, um, but they by and large all had cell phones. Granted, they weren't smartphones, right? because they don't have internet where they live, but they had dumb phones. And there are some people in this space that are um, building the applications to send Bitcoins via text message. Um, and then you have folks like Mark Zuckerberg, right, who has this wonderful initiative to bring internet to everyone else in the world. And so um, these separate efforts working hand in hand will build the, the, the steps to bringing access to the world's unbanked. I would say merchant acceptance. Nobody's going to be interested in getting Bitcoin sent to them unless they know they can spend it somewhere. Uh, the people, the, the reason people are buying it in America isn't because they need a way to purchase things on Overstock.com. It's because they're investing in it, and you don't have as many investors by definition in the developing world. There's not as much disposable income available for that. So um, the reason that they would use it is to purchase things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. Um, really, really great use case that exists right now is if you're in Nigeria, you cannot use a credit card to purchase something um, on a, online in America, um, but you can use Bitcoin for that. So th this is the thing, you know, ha receive Bitcoin and you can now access American um, online shops because it's irreversible. Not as great for the consumer as this reversible transaction, but it is really great for merchants. All right. Do we have anybody else? Going once, going twice, or maybe Tim? You know, I think it's a complicated technical topic, and when they're complicated technical topics, sometimes things get lost in translation, mm -hmm. but I think that we've tried very hard to explain it, it as we can in lay person, to laypersons, which is a big challenge in this area. Yeah. 
And another, um, a great, some of you may or may not be aware, um, a great publication in this space that writes exclusively on digital currencies and the blockchain is called Coindesk. They're based in the UK and, you know, they've been there from the beginning and they have a stellar team of journalists who do a really good job of explaining the technology to the layperson. Well, I would say definitely from Joe's group, the Consumers Research. I oh mean, my gosh, they. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is what they do, right? Is they look at, they write about health and finance and technology, and this is what they do. They are. Um, he's deeply involved in the community, knowing he knows the people in the community. He's getting information firsthand, um, and his team. They're able to write from a consumer's perspective, which you know, if you're a congressional staffer. You care about your constituents. You care about how this is going to personally affect their lives. Um, and so I'd say definitely consumers research is okay. Yeah, we are a DC-based trade association, and we're specifically here for the policy community. So if anyone here would like us to come, we can do uh, closed-door briefings or private briefings for yourself or your staff uh, on these types of issues. And we can also help bring in other experts from the industry to answer the types of questions or questions of the committees that you may uh, be working with on this technology as well. And for, you know, regulatory um, guidance as well, Coin Center you know, raise your hand if you want to talk to Queen Center is also here in D.C. and they're a trade advocacy group. This might have been a setup by Kyle, uh, but we have a white paper coming out. <laughs> uh, we brought Consumers Research sponsored an event in Bretton Woods, uh, symbolically, uh, to, and, and we all got together for a few days this summer and did a lot of work. All three of us were there, and so we, we do have a white paper that you know, should be released shortly. Yeah, you know, you guys have done a pretty good job overview in those things. Uh, I think there are also, you know, some more straight academic sources. Uh, the Mercatus Institute out uh, at George Mason. Oh, and the MIT um, Digital Currency Initiative. I don't know if you guys are aware. You know, the Bitcoin Foundation used to house the, co the core developers. So there are five core developers who have the keys to the code. Um, and there used to be three of them used to be housed at Bitcoin Foundation. Now they are at the MIT Digital Currency Initiative. Brian Ford, former advisor to the White House, is the head of that initiative, and um, they have some white papers coming out as well, working with other um, universities in the world. Can I ask a quick question before we? Just a quick question. Uh, did anybody? Maybe you can't say this, but did anybody's like representative or uh, was anybody like told to go here? Like, hey, we should really find out about Bitcoin. Can you go check ch check this out? And maybe you can't say that. <laughs> no. Okay. Nobody, you guys even work here? No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're just here for the food. No. I worked on the hill too, so I've sat in these shoes before. Yeah, and so did I. So this is really fun to be back. But now that we've told you everywhere else to go and look for information about, about this, uh, unfortunately, we're starting to run out of the clock here, so I think we're going to shut things down. But I'm sure we'll all be up here for just a few more minutes if anybody has a few Absolutely. final thoughts. Thank you. Yeah. Chat with us Thank about. You. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Tim for hosting. Well, this is a lot of fun, guys.